everybody. This is Shobert Shoberi back at the Shobert Show. Excited to have another great guest who I've been very fortunate enough to know for, not to say at least 15, maybe more years, Nikhil Basu Trivedi. Thanks for being part of the Shobert Show. Thanks, Shobert. Yeah, it's, it's been so many years since we've known each other. I feel like you got to know me really when I was a kid. And so this is going to be fun. Yeah, I mean, I've had the very fortunate to know you through your mother, who is uh, actually one of the people I look up to all the time because she was my basically advisor through San Jose State and got my career going. So I'm ever grateful for what she did and obviously Dr. Wood did too. Uh, so yeah, I've been fortunate to know you for this long. And um, Nikhil, uh, I wanted to kind of ask, like, would love to hear about, uh, you know, who you are in your background, like a brief background, where you grew up and what's your story now? Yeah, well, you already alluded to, you know, one of the most important pieces, which is my mom. Uh, yeah. The other important piece is my dad. So my parents grew up in India. They moved to the UK when my mom was doing her PhD in the UK and, and my dad uh, went out there to be with her. And so I was born in the UK. My sister was born in the UK. And my parents, my mom, is, as you alluded to, is in academia. So she was originally, she studied economics, but she became a professor of management and then in the business school. And my dad is in technology. And so their jobs brought us out here to the Bay Area when I was 13. And that was a really fundamental moment for me because I went from knowing a little bit about technology growing up in the UK to suddenly being exposed to everything out here in Silicon Valley when I was in high school here. Mm. I got to learn how to code. And I think the combination of my mom's you know, business school, academic role, and my dad being in tech you know, played a big role in me getting more and more excited in, in entrepreneurship and to one day go try to start a company. That was my upbringing. I feel really grateful that we immigrated to the US and immigrated to the Bay Area because I don't think I would have done any of the things that I've done professionally had that not happened. That's amazing. And, uh, listen, you know, a lot of people who change, you know, it always has like mixed stories about like, oh, when you were a kid, did you approve and embrace the situation? It seems like you embraced it, right? Because I'm assuming when you're 13, a lot goes through your mind. You probably were like at a really good school in the UK and you're like, oh man, okay. But then on the flip side, you're coming to California um, and to you know Silicon Valley. So do you have like something like you had any regrets or the excitement was just from the very get-go and did like the high school you went to, did that really help you really go after this? Yeah, that's a great and question. I actually really didn't enjoy my first year in the US. I really missed my friends in England. I missed like the culture I'd grown up with. You know, no one here understood football, uh, yeah. soccer, of course, or cricket. You know, I didn't have any friends over here and struggled to make them in that eighth grade year. So I actually really missed home in year one. And then I went to a school called Menlo for high school. Right. And actually loved it there. And I, I started to make friends there. And I progressively, I think, brace what's so amazing about the Bay Area and just how fortunate I was to live in the center of Silicon Valley. Of course, the weather is amazing in the Bay Area as well, so that helps sure. uh, make one feel a little bit at home when 
you look at the weather report in the UK and it's often really damp in the winter, whereas in, in the Bay Area, as we're currently experiencing, it's pretty sunny, you know, most days and, uh, yeah. and, and pretty warm. I know, I know an Apple, this is this has got to be, so when I was back in school and my friend just interning and uh, we were both out of, in our careers, they had this post on their website to apply. Come to Silicon Valley, 300 out of 365 days of sunlight. It's one of their sales pitches. And then you mentioned your football soccer fan. I remember you mentioned you had a, a really good experience. Who's your favorite team? And you had a Champions League final moment. Is that correct? Yeah, I, um, I, I still support Manchester United. Right. I have done so since I was, I think, five years old, 1994. You know, unfortunately, I feel like we we peaked when I was a kid. You know, winning the the Champions League in '99 and yeah. uh, the Premier League and the FA Cup, the, the treble year. It's been a pretty rough hmm. last decade of being a Man U fan. So, especially this week with us bowing out of the Champions League. So it's a bit painful for me to to, to talk about right now. Yeah, but, uh, I am still a diehard <laughs> fan, and I hope one day we get back to those heights. Yeah, yeah, we could skip the <laughs> the sports and conversations. I mean, to make it a like a dark feeling after. But yeah, and you mentioned you know vicinity and being in Silicon Valley. Do you uh, when you're at Menlo, did anything inspire you to you know say I'm going to be in Silicon Valley in tech while you were in high school? Because I know you went somewhere else for college. Where did you go to college? I went to the East Coast to Princeton for college, but right. I will say, you know, I I got to learn computer science in high school, taught by an incredible teacher, Mr. Thibodeau at Menlo, who, by the way, you know, between Menlo and Princeton, he's he's the best educator that I ever had. Wow. Between all the schools I went to in England, he just was an incredible teacher, just had like a love for teaching and his subject of CS and lots of other things as well. And I feel like he inspired, he was at Menlo for... I think close to 40 years as a teacher and inspired a lot of people to go out and do more with computer science, including starting companies after being in his classes. So he was a really big influence on me in high school. And I think it's just when you, when you get exposed to this area, it's yeah. hard not to think, Ooh, one day, you know, maybe I should go start a company. And it's just that mindset that, you know, I think now has spread to many parts of the world. Back then, this is sort of early 2000s. It really was most present in Silicon Valley and not that present anywhere else. Certainly not in Reading in England, where I went to middle school before, before coming out. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I always kind of uh, step back and say, how, how did Silicon Valley really come about? Uh, personally, from all, what I've read, it's from the likes of Stanford University um, and the, you know, the companies that have come out of that university from like HP to beyond. I mean, we know the Googles, we know the Yahoo's and so forth. And so the, they embrace that culture of creativity and failure, really. And I think the failure is the biggest one. People don't look upon as your black sheep. I won't forget it. Uh, back when it was a plug and play tech center in the early years, we had like delegations from all around the world. There was Dutch delegation. I remember a startup founder from the Netherlands stood up and said, if I tried to do a company and failed, my family 
my friends, my peers, everybody would look back at me and say, I am a black sheep. Yeah. Where, what would I do after that? Like, you know, that was kind of the, the culture globally, but, and because of the success of Silicon Valley and tech and the, I really think it's, you know, the decentralization of like working from anywhere that has been able uh, and enabled really hiring people from around the world. They get that, you know, culture of mantra. It's like, it used to be like a split company from Silicon Valley, one other location. Now it's everywhere. So I agree. I mean, it's, it's crazy to see in the last like 10 years, how fast that has changed, not just both here in Silicon Valley, but really globally. So you basically said like you studied, uh, you know, computer science, you went to Princeton. Did you continue studying computer science <laughs> there? You decided saying, no, I'm going to try some other things. Cause I know people, when they go to these really high, you know, quality schools like Princeton, they have these like dual, they allow people like yourself to do dual major stuff to graduate. I'm intrigued to see, did you do like single major, double major? Yes. I, I ended up majoring, concentrating in molecular biology. Wow. And I did a certificate, which is like a minor in finance. Basically, I took a lot of uh, biology, chemistry, economics, Mm. some CS classes when I was in in college. And I rolled all of that into mobile as my major and these other things as as my minors. You know, my philosophy when I went to college was I want to learn something that if I don't learn it in college, I'm never going to learn it. And, you know, I think that's kind of the beauty of a liberal arts degree. You know, whatever you study, it it teaches you how to think probably more than it teaches you the subject itself. And, you know, I felt like I'd done a bunch of CS in high school. I was never going to be like the best at CS. And so majoring in CS wasn't going to be for me, but, I was also learning and working on projects on the side had me code. And so I was flexing those skills outside of the classroom um, more so than inside the classroom. That's a little bit about what happened to me in college. You know, obviously I haven't really used the mobile in the years since directly, although I've invested in a few companies at the intersection of biology and CS and healthcare and perhaps you know, my, my molecular biology major gave me a little bit more credibility to invest in that area. So quick, uh, so let me just ask you, uh, so when I think of, you know, the speakers and people, excuse me, the, the listeners, when they think probably mobile, they're thinking of your device that you're looking at your phone and looking at like, <laughs> you know, social media apps and so forth. <laughs> like, I, you know, from what you mentioned mobile, you mean, you know, molecular biology and chemistry and so forth. Is that correct? Yes. Sorry. So yeah. no, 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 no. bio molecular biology, I still shorten to MolBio, which you're right, is weirdly similar to mobile, but, but very different. Yeah, my, my senior thesis in college, which is something everyone does when they, before graduating from, from Princeton during their senior year, my sure. senior thesis was about the $1,000 genome and the path towards personalized medicine and wow. so it was actually at the intersection of biology and economics and finance with a little bit of CS too, because, you know, genomic analysis, for example, is all about algorithms and, and computational analysis. Mm. Uh, and so it was very much like a, an interdisciplinary experience for me, which was, uh, which is what I wanted. 
Yeah. So I, I got to say, first off, kudos to you at that young age to recognize that, A, you want to learn, you know, have a real cool experience in college by learning um, something really fascinating, which is, you know, uh, molecular biology is not for everybody. But if you are interested in it, it's it's definitely really int- intriguing. And then secondly, this, this uh, $1,000 genome project. So I wanted to ask, and it's probably relative in timing. Do you know much what's going on with Mark Cuban and the, you know, he's working on a startup and investing in a startup that really goes after the pharmaceutical industry. Um, hmm. The costs are extremely high and it's inflated. You know, only a certain handful of organizations that really benefit through the distributions through obviously all the, the medical industry organizations and doctors. So what is your thoughts on that? Do you know much about it or no? I don't know much about it. I've just seen the the announcement of it um, and some of the the tweets about it. Uh, You know, I I do think I'm not an expert in prescription drugs and the pharmacy industry, but it is stunning to me how expensive branded drugs are in the U S and, and how, you know, huge of a business that is. And yet how many of those, drugs are available as generics for very cheap. And so I think it's a great idea to go after that, yes. that industry. There have been a few examples of companies like GoodRx that help mm-hmm. consumers pay less for their for their medication. I like what Mark Cuban and the rest of that team has gotten started, and I, I hope it's successful. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and it's fascinating how many people who, you know, a huge amount of Americans, I think it's something that beyond like 10 million plus, maybe 30 million plus uh, that are uninsured, I can imagine they're buying direct, you know, full in cash. And a lot of times insurance don't cover it. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, he brings more competition to this space and, you know, it brings the cost down for everybody too. I'm going to go back to, you mentioned like college. Uh, so when you were in college, you said, you know, back in your Menlo, uh, you had to itch to do potentially a startup. And I know a lot of people do it while they're in, either in college and or graduating. Did you have the itch? Did you work on any startups? Um, and, yeah. or- and this is kind of where our journeys intersected because, yeah. you know, I, I was working on a number of different startup ideas during my freshman year of college. None of them went anywhere. But that summer after freshman year, I worked at, at Plug and Play with, with you. And, and by the way, I, I loved getting to work with you. I feel like you embraced me and, and introduced me to all these people and, and were really, really kind to me that summer. And I think I was, I guess I was ni- 19 years old, right? Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I didn't know much of anything, but um, I had a lot of fun getting to, to shadow you and work with you and, and the rest of that, that team. It was much, it was my, my pleasure. And I know I'm always forever grateful for working at Plug and Play. Uh, I was an incredible place to I basically call it like Silicon Valley in a box. Yeah. Uh, so when so many you know, people are, just walk through that, you know, all oh the time. Goodness. Uh, yeah. And not just like those who are based there, there's an endless amount of people who just came in for a few hours and were just like, wow, mm-hmm. these are incredible people. Um, and I, you know, my, my thought process is like, I have these <laughs> interns who are there like yourself and Nick and, and others, uh, at that time, I'm like, these are really smart young folks who probably just learned it's like a learning path for them faster than they probably could in college or other places. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I'm glad it inspired you to go after the startup idea. Yeah, I mean, it was very inspiring that summer. And so I went back to Princeton for sophomore year and I just had like a renewed interest in 
startups and entrepreneurship. I actually restarted the Princeton Entrepreneurship Club on campus, which had been dormant for a while. This was back in the fall of 2008. 14 years later, that club is actually now the largest student organization on campus as the most students part of it of any of any student organization. Wow. And I actually thought of that as as a startup experience for me on figuring out how do I build a club and get people to you know join it and be excited about trading ideas on startups and uh, putting together competitions and other things to sort of get people to, to start working on on their ideas and, and actually developing their ideas. And then one of the founders that I met during the process of restarting the club and 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 trading startup ideas is uh, was a guy named Carter Cleveland who was two years ahead of me at Princeton. And he was working on an idea in the art world which became Artsy, a marketplace for art that is still going uh, 13, 14 years since Carter started that. And I joined the, the founding team to, to help him out. And so that was a really more traditional startup experience where we were building a tech product and trying to find product market fit and going out there to try to raise capital. In the summer of 2009, Carter actually came and lived at my parents' house. We had free office space at plug and play uh, <laughs> yeah. we were bouncing around those offices as well and um, and that was a really important and impactful experience for me I actually ended up realizing art was never going to be my life's work but every time we would pitch an investor I thought wow that's an amazing job and you and I got to hear some pitches together as well um, right. the summer before and so I think the light bulb had gone off in my head by that time that at some point in my career, if I get the chance to try investing, that's mm. what I'd love to be able to do. Um, and, and and of course, I got to do that the following summer when I joined Insight. So that was my journey in dabbling in startups between the e-club and Artsy and a couple other projects during my freshman year. Uh, but, you know, I, I was never I was never able to see any of those startups through to the promised land. Hopefully sure. my latest startup, which is a venture firm called Footwork, ends up being, you know, the startup that, that defines my career. Uh, it just so happens that it's a venture capital firm, uh, not a technology company. Which is uh, incredible to do because it's not easy to uh, create uh, a venture fund and uh, raise capital, um, which I have a lot of questions for actually. So um, before we go to Footwork, did how long were you at Insight? Uh, was that I know you went obviously afterwards to another venture fund um, and you created, I thought it was a fascinating role there too. Uh, but how long were you inside? What were you doing there? And then you were at Shasta. Afterwards. Yeah. So I spent uh, summer of 2010 at Insight and then I rejoined after I graduated from Princeton. And I spent exactly a year back there full time. I love my time at Insight. It was a very different firm then. I think they were like, 30-ish people on the investment team, and now it's over 100 people on the investment team. Uh, so the firm has grown a lot since I left Insight. But what I think remains the same is the quality of the people that, that I worked with there, many of whom are still at Insight. Uh, you know, these folks have turned into just incredible investors. I mean, Devin Parikh, Richard Wells, Ryan Hinkle, Jeff Lieberman, Jeff Loring, of course, who, who founded the firm, have just had an incredible run in the last 15 years 
And that's what's led to Insight, of course, raising bigger and bigger funds. Now, you know, each fund is tens of billions of dollars and, and, and they do everything. You know, so, so learning from that group of people and, and building a relationship with them that has served me well for the rest of my career was, was amazing, along with my peers at Insight, many of whom have gone off to different firms today. And, and actually started their own firms like I have. So that was, and then, you know, of course, when you uh, are in a role such as the one at Insight where your primary responsibility is to speak to founders all the time, you quickly develop a filter for what does a good company look like versus a great company versus an in- incredible potential investment. Just the in- amount of reps you get from speaking to so many founders develops your filter and your judgment. And so I got a head start on that, you know, from the summer of 2010. I took that and those learnings with me to joining Shasta Ventures, which I joined in 2012. I, I moved back out here to the Bay Area because Insight was in New York. Uh, I wanted to be part of a smaller team. I wanted to focus at the earlier stage. And I'd gotten to know one of my partners at Shasta, Todd, when I was an undergrad. And, um, and so those were some of the, the factors that drove me to join Shasta. And that was more of a holistic experience on just what it's like to be a, a venture capitalist. Because at Insight, I was siloed to mainly sourcing companies. Whereas at Shasta, very quickly, I got to be uh, part of board meetings as a board observer for some of our portfolio companies. Uh, I, of course, you know, went out there to look for new investments as well. I was part of every partnership meeting and every investment decision conversation that we had. And, and so I got to learn sort of all aspects of the business across uh, eight years at Shasta and again, work with a really great. So that, that was some of my experience from uh, 2010 to 2020 between Insight and, and, and Shasta across 10 years. Yeah, you had a great, you have a good eye uh, for finding funds because you mentioned Insight. I know the Shasta venture team basically have done an incredible job, multiple rounds of funds. Uh, you know, their investments have done quite well. So that was a good time. And you, I believe you also created a, a very new venture role. Is that correct? Did you, yeah. do you want to explain well, that? So my role at Shasta evolved over, over time. You know, initially I was really, I was an associate. I was working with my partner, Todd. I was thinking about sort of portfolio services for the firm, but also looking at investments. And that evolved into more of a traditional investing role across many years. You know, I went from being an associate to being a senior associate, to being a principal, to being a partner, and then finally to being a managing director or general partner. You know, I got to start leading investments uh, back in 2016 and got to develop my own track record of investments there, which, again, I I feel really grateful to have been able to do because I was still pretty young, you know, I was 26, 27 back then. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I started being able to lead investments to join the boards of companies as a director. And, 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 and Shasta gave me that, that freedom to just, to just do that. Especially after four years of being there. So that's, uh, uh, you know, great. That's great for you. Um, and then uh, when was that time frame you decided, because to have a role like that, so many people would dream of. Uh, and then you're like, it's time for me to move on uh, and start my own venture fund, like in footwork. Is it yeah. more, more like a timing thing? Because I know a lot of times, and I read an article about this uh, solo capitalist 
and what's going on now with that movement. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Was it that? Was it more just like, you know, you're, you're kind of feeling you're like you want to take a break and then you decided to do it. Like what happened at that point? Yeah. So in early 2020, realized, wow, I've been at this firm for, you know, almost eight years, seven and a half plus years. I've learned a ton, but entrepreneurial bug that I had in college had never really left, you know, it was still somewhere there gnawing away at me. And I found myself thinking through, you know, what is the global maximum opportunity for my career? Not just, you know, a sort of local maximum, something that will be great for me to do, but truly like the dream, the dream, what do I really want to do with, with my career? And you, can you explain what global maximum is? I'm, I'm yeah, 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 sure. Sorry. It's a, no, it's sorry. great. Uh, I, lo- I love the, co- the general concept sounds fascinating. That's what I'm at. So, you know, in mathematics, there's the concept of, um, of maximum or, or plural is maxima. Yep. And, um, and so, you know, if you're like on a map, uh, you may see a, a, a hill next to you. That's the only hill in the region. Uh, that hill uh, may be a local maximum, but it's not the global maximum, which, you know, if you look at the mountains and hills in the world is Mount Everest, right? That That is the, the highest peak. And so the way, and actually it's my friend, Chris Peck, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Pace Capital uh, out in New York, uh, I remember Chris saying this to me in, I think, early 2020. He said, look, you know, you you have a, a great local maximum role. Uh, you have other potential sort of local maximum roles. You could go do in venture where you're a you know, general partner at some firm. But is that, the, is that a local maximum or is it the global maximum? Is it the thing that you really want to do with your career in life? And... I just kept reflecting on that. Like, what is the global maximum? Because, you know, the other thing is when you, when you do this job in venture, you're spending all your time with, with entrepreneurs. And what you see in these founders is they're all reaching for that global maximum. They're all taking risk to try to build something and, you know, make something out of their careers and out of their lives. And it's hard not to, wonder, you know, am I doing the same thing or not <laughs> with, with my own career? You know, should I take some more risk? And, and you know, Shasta had also changed across the eight years of me being there. Um, and it was a different firm, uh, you know, with a different set of people than the exact team that, that was there when I joined. Uh, and I realized so much of venture comes down to sort of the people you work with and the structure of the firm. And and I realized it was just going to be very hard to have that happen unless, uh, in a global maximum way, unless I went out to try to build a firm. So what I did in in sort of early and in the summer of 2020 is write a bunch of myself on what I saw as the future of the venture industry, including about solo capitalists. And I, I ended up publishing that piece as well as another piece on the bifurcation of the venture industry into agglomerate of firms and specialist firms. I started thinking about what a new firm could look like if I went out to build it. And then I started to think about who could be the people that I 
go build a firm with. And all of that led to uh, the start of footwork. I left Shasta end of June of 2020. I got together with my now partner, Mike Smith, uh, in late 2020. We started chatting with limited partners, uh, and then we ended up raising and closing on, on our first fund at Footwork in April of 2021, about a year ago now. Pretty exciting. What does foot, Footwork mean? Is, is there a deep meaning behind it? or? Yeah. So, you know, Mike and I were trying to think through what, what, what do we call this firm? And one of our mutual passions is a whole bunch of sports. You know, Mike played uh, basketball and football growing up. Um, uh, sorry, football meaning soccer. Uh, I played uh, cricket and tennis and, of course, love football a lot. Uh, and so I started thinking about, you know, words attached to sports, given it's a mutual passion of ours, that could also be meaningful for uh, investing or entrepreneurship. And I actually came up with footwork in a dream. I woke up and uh, had the name on the tip of my tongue. And I, I asked my wife what she thought of, of footwork. And she said, Oh, that's interesting. And then I texted Mike about it. <laughs> and, you know, what footwork actually means is adroitly responding to new opportunities, quickly responding to new opportunities, which is actually a very important skill for any entrepreneur to have. Sure. Uh, it's also the foundational element of playing a lot of different activities, uh, you know, for, for tennis, for basketball, for football and soccer, for uh, dancing, for boxing. Uh, one's footwork is a really important foundational thing to have to be able to be good at any of those activities. And so we just got excited about the connotations of the name footwork uh, as it relates to sort of building your foundation as a company, having a strong foundation to be able to execute on the product and, and the team and everything else to, to build a great business. And also just the personal resonance Mike and I had with that name. Uh, so that's the full story of, of footwork. Yeah, that's pretty cool that you actually uh, thought of the name in a dream. It's really <laughs> fascinating to kind of have that aha moment. And it's great that, you know, your wife and your business partner had that same energy aligned. And I'm, I'm intrigued, like what, how much do you guys raise initially? Uh, how many companies do you invest in? Uh, you know, what kind of company do you look at? Because you mentioned the idea of footwork and going along with the trends and movements. And where are you now? I know I asked a lot, so I'll go. I'm happy to re yeah. Yeah, re ask any of them. All good questions. So we raised 175 million for our first fund. Um, as I said, that closed in April of 2021, about a year ago now. We have made uh, five about to be six investments. So probably you know six investments in year one. In each case, invested in a seed or series A round, led around. In almost every case, my partner Mike or I uh, am on the on the board of the companies that we've invested in. Uh, you know, both of us work pretty closely with uh, with those those companies, and you know, one of the the sort of differentiators of our firm and and one of the theses behind our firm is it's a combination of exceptional operating and investing experience, which Mike and I have, we think, in our partnership that founders can benefit from 
in their early stage lead investor. Uh, so uh, Mike's background, uh, he was at Stitch Fix, which is a public company now in the retail apparel space. As their fourth employee, uh, he was there as their president and COO from the idea stages to being a public company. Uh, so that whole journey. Before that, he was COO at Walmart.com. And he's just a really well-respected uh, builder of businesses and an operator of businesses. I have been investing for a while now with um, with you know a, a track record of backing some great companies at the early stage. And so the combination that we have, we think is a great combination for founders to pick as their seed or series A lead investor um, because they don't have to pick between someone from more of an investing background or someone from an operating background. They actually get both in us. Uh, and as we intend to scale our firm, we hope to be uh, a bunch of us, probably four, five, six of us sitting around the table uh, and and continuing to have that mix of people from uh, investing and operating backgrounds in our partnership. Um, so that's the thesis we have at the core. And, uh, and we feel super lucky to be in business with, you know, our first fund and these first six founding teams that we get to work with. Yeah, that's exciting. I know, um, the, the operational movement, uh, besides just having like pure finance people in the venture has been, I'm assuming it started around like Andreessen Horowitz, um, and their fund. And, uh, and Google Ventures and others. And uh, it's great that you have kind of uh, played along with this. And I know you have you have a big company uh, that you're really passionate about. I read about like how uh, you're keen on you know, supporting people of multiple backgrounds. Half of your investments have been, been in women. I think Canva is like the big poster child. Is that correct? Um, and their incredible story of what has happened with them. Yeah. So, you know... Um... At Shasta, we were fortunate to to do the seed round back in 2014 in Canva, which is an online design um, uh, software product and company you know that has now become worth 40 billion dollars as a private company, and uh, and they've been public about this, but it's in the billions now in revenue, which to me is more important than you know the last round valuation. It's, it's amazing fundamental business you know when when we invested there was no revenue in fact it was a couple of years before they turned on monetization uh, the product was just 6 months after launch back in 2014 when we did that seed round and it's led by an incredible woman named Melanie Perkins who uh, has just shown herself to be an exceptional product visionary and um, team builder and leader of of Canva and what you're referring to, Shabir, is I did I did uh, tweet and, and and post on LinkedIn that uh, I realized actually only in hindsight, uh, almost fifty percent of the founders um, that I've invested in across eleven years in venture are are women. Almost fifty percent of the founding teams, I should say, have a woman on the founding team. But actually, many of those have a woman as the CEO. Uh, and in Footwork's early life, in our first five investments. 60% of them have a woman as a CEO. And, you know, that, that hasn't actually been intentional. It's not like we've or I've ever um, said, you know, I, I want 
half the companies I back to, to have a woman on the founding team. But those just happened to be the standout companies, the ones that, you know, I felt and, and our teams, uh, our partnerships felt were outlier companies. And uh, I think, you know, Mike and I really do believe that diversity uh, can be a competitive advantage for uh, any business uh, and diversity, not just in in gender, but in race, in background, in in thinking and, and sort of, you know, how people make decisions. We see this in our, in our own partnership, you know, Mike and I are, are really different people on, on many levels, but we also see it in the companies that we've invested in. And we think in general, diverse thinking and diversity at the core leads to better returns and better outcomes and, and more success. Yeah. Well, that's incredible having that mantra from, you know, just being naturally uh, uh, doing so is, is great. Um, uh, I hope other entrepreneurs that are out there listening, you know, thinks of uh, footwork uh, as an investment fund to uh, go and pro- approach. And um, and I know that we, we have limited time. I want to actually pick your brain on your thoughts about 2022, you know, what the world is at, what you guys are looking for. I mean, you mentioned again, uh, I like this idea of global maximum. What do you see as a global maximum for, let's say, this year, as well as the next coming years? Um, yeah, it'd be fascinating to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I write a newsletter called The the Next Big Thing. And, and so I think a lot about, you know, uh, what's going to happen in the future and... What does the next decade have in store for us? Um, you know, I think for the technology industry, there's, there's so much happening and changing right now, uh, you know, in, in areas like crypto and Web3, in climate tech, uh, you know, we're seeing areas like the supply chain and the disruptions that have happened in the last couple of years because of COVID and, and now because of inflation and more lockdowns in China uh, that are realizing, wow, we need to be digitized and we can't just rely on the old processes that got us to this this stage. And so I just see technology upending every industry in the next decade. And then these particular areas such as uh, the climate crisis and a move towards decentralization and token economies and other things that are part of the crypto and Web3 ecosystems uh, being places where really talented people uh, want to work and, uh, and where you know, the future is getting built as we speak. And so that's some of what I think the next 10 years has in store. And, and, and for me and for us at, at Footwork, you know, my hope is that we have the chance to partner with a handful of the companies that define this next uh, this next generation of technology, uh, and that we partner with them at the early stage. And I think, you know, that's sort of uh, what I see as like a, a sort of global maximum in in uh, in our world in the next decade. Yeah, that's uh, that's great to hear. I mean, I, I definitely believe in the future of uh, you know the digital space 
ever so connected to everybody, really. Uh, and I think the last few years proven that is the case. Um, and I'm not just talking about like, if you're in technology, you have to be you know equipped, ready to go, working from home. No, I'm talking about like every industry possible. Um, you know, lockdowns really was a wake up call uh, because of the pandemic. So, um, yeah, I think that's a fascinating thing. And, and um, I'd love to hear more about it. Probably worth another podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but this has been so much fun. Uh, Nikhil, thank you so much for being part of the, the Chaubert show. Uh, and it was great to hear kind of the, who is, uh, you know, Nikhil and what is your background. Uh, and exciting to hear about what's footwork uh, going to go through this year in 2022 and beyond. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to see uh, all the great people you bring onto this show. And uh, I'm grateful that you know we got to meet 15 years ago and, uh, and that you helped me you know, break into this industry in, in, in many ways. Uh, and I can't wait to see what's next for you as well. It's going to be a fun next 10 years and beyond. Indeed. Thank you so much, Nikhil. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in to The Chabert Show. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Have a great one, everybody. Bye.